Your insurance needs are as unique as the work you do and the industry you're in. Having the right protection in place is just the start. There's so much you can do to mitigate risks to your business for today and as you grow. At Sovereign Insurance, we're here to help with valuable information, insights, tips, and tools to help you protect your operations. Visit SovereignInsurance.ca to learn more. As a small business owner, you are the business, and you know the time you're spending on payroll and HR could be spent in a hundred better ways. Ceridian PowerPay is fast, simple, and intuitive software trusted by over 40,000 Canadian small business owners like you. Automate your HR and payroll processes, keep track of compliance, and pay your people from your desktop or mobile phone. Free up time to focus on what really matters when it comes to your business, and get back to doing what you love with Ceridian PowerPay. Applications are now open for the Canadian Export Challenge, CXC 2020, presented in partnership with UPS, the Trade Commissioner Service, and Export Development Canada, along with MasterCard and Scotiabank, and powered by Google Canada, is the first nationwide fully digital pitch competition for Canadian exporters. This year, the Canadian Export Challenge will be accepting all first-round pitches through online video submissions. Don't miss your chance to pitch for up to $25,000 cash and up to $100,000 in support. What are you waiting for? Submit your pitch video now. The free events are open to attend for all Canadian entrepreneurs and anyone interested in learning more about the Canadian export ecosystem. Register at startupcan.ca forward slash CXC. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. I'm your host, Rick Spence, business journalist, editor, public speaker, and entrepreneur. After 15 years as the national entrepreneurship columnist at the National Post, and as the former editor and publisher of Profit, the magazine for Canadian entrepreneurs, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, scalable, and successful. On this show, we connect you with Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. You'll meet the people driving the entrepreneurial movement and we'll share their first-person adventures and their tips, hacks, and best advice for running startup and growth companies. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 3.5 million entrepreneurs. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. To entrepreneurs everywhere, this is your show. Ladies and gentlemen, entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. We're thrilled today to have Jim Estel, CEO of Danby Appliances and a new startup, Shipperby, on our show today. Jim is a Canadian technology entrepreneur and philanthropist. He started his first computer distribution business from the trunk of his car while in university, and he grew that business to $2 billion in sales. Jim has invested in, mentored, and advised many technology companies, including BlackBerry, and he's the 2019 EY Entrepreneur of the Year, Ontario, Ontario-wide winner. So congratulations on that, Jim, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're delighted to have you. You're like... Uh, the archetypal entrepreneur to me. So I've been covering entrepreneurs for a long time, uh, 
primarily starting with Profit Magazine many, many years ago. And you were one of our favorite entrepreneurs then with EMJ, and you still are uh, doing all these new things that you're doing. So I'm really excited to, to talk with you about this. First thing, though, I wanted to do is just make sure that we earn uh, the attention of our listeners. They're all busy entrepreneurs, and they all want to... The first question is as it may be yours, what's in it for me? So what are the top pieces of advice that you want entrepreneurs to take away from this conversation? So I'm going to give two pieces. One is how to make money while you do good. And the other is how to profit from failure. Oh, okay. That sounds pretty interesting. What if you're not failing? Should you be still listen to this? Uh, you, it means that you're not trying hard enough. I always say fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. If you're not failing, you're not skating close enough to the edge, and it means that you're, uh, you're not going to succeed. It's really just like the people that hit the most home runs. They get up to bat more, and they strike out more. And same thing is true with an entrepreneur, except you're not at bat. You're out with new products, out with new sales channels, out with new sales calls. So it's uh, getting back on the horse after you get knocked off. But the more times you get on the horse, the better. Essentially, it sounds like what you're saying is, if it's important to fail, is that if, if, an, entrep if an entrepreneur is feeling satisfied with their business and not actively working on it, then you think they're missing an opportunity. Exactly. Exactly. It's like uh, telling my credit manager, if we're not losing on a few accounts, then we're probably not giving enough credit to the people. Um, and so you need to... Uh, basically try more things. My other uh, thing is failure is the best form of market research. So you can spend a lot of money on market research or just bring out the product and find out who wants to buy it. And, and then you'll learn whether it's a good product or a bad product or whether your sales approach is good or bad or whether your marketing approach is good or bad. Just try a few things. It's uh, fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. Right. But I've heard a lot of people, a lot of backlash against fail fast, against that mentality saying, don't, don't, don't fail. Go out there and kill it. Oh, oh but you see, that's the, um, this is uh, the entrepreneurial question. Entrepreneurial questions have no right answer. So the opposite of failing fast is persist, persist, persist. And it's easy in hindsight to say we shouldn't have persisted in that. And it's easy in hindsight to say maybe we should have kept persisting on that. But um, the reason to fail fast is so that you can try other things because if you keep doing the same thing, uh, you won't be able to try other things. Another part of failure is having a failure does not make you a failure um, and create a culture of failure in your company. That is not zapping people when they try things because otherwise people will never try anything. And you'll have a bunch of people that when you walk by, they put their head down and make sure that you're not, they're, they're not trying some things. You want them to actually try some things. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I remember working for a big organization where they always said, come on, grow that business, grow that business. And when we tried to do new things and they didn't work, it was, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But then that's as long as you have the fail cheap part on it. So you have to fail within your affordability. So I'm saying fail. I'm not saying go bankrupt. I'm saying take some of your profits. And I've also seen very successful businesses that die over time by not reinvesting enough in their business. And that's actually the flaw that we get. It's sort of good is the enemy of great. You know, we have a good business. Oh, it's a great little business. We'll just keep on uh, doing what we do. And then we find out, gee, nobody wants to buy these uh, fax machines anymore or these buggy whips or whatever. <laughs> uh, buggy whips. I wonder, wonder 
what kind of business that was, even when it was a business. <laughs> so I so I really wanted to talk to you for this podcast because you 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 are the 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 epitome of the entrepreneur turned executive in terms of having started on your own, built a business from the ground up, sold it, ran the Canadian division of the company that bought it, and then your next act was to take over an established large Canadian manufacturer in Danby, making the mini refrigerators and other specialized appliances. And so you you, you, you showed that one of the few people who showed that there is actually mobility between the entrepreneurial world and sort of conventional larger business. And then most recently, you've started this startup with Shipperbee and gone back to your entrepreneurial roots. So it's really exciting. So, so can you take us through quickly uh, about EMJ? It was a computer parts distribution business, I think, started, as we said, from the trunk of your car. Tell us about that. So I'm an engineer, and I needed a computer to do some circuit board design. And I got a better deal if I bought two of them. So I bought two and sold one. And someone else needed one, so I bought another two. And then someone wanted a printer, and someone wanted printer cables and software and memory and a bunch of stuff. So soon I was buying and selling computer parts and uh, hardware, software, and peripherals. And that's the business that I... Can we can we have a date on this, please? I started in 1980 when I was in uh, my final year of engineering, University of Waterloo. And uh, I grew that business. Uh, everyone thinks, oh, you grow to $2 billion. I grew it really fast. I actually didn't. It took me... Um, a dec- more than a decade to get to $100 million in sales. So it, it, it was fairly slow growth. I mean, slow growth, I, I double often or go up 50%, but it wasn't, uh, you know, zero to $2 billion instantly. And uh, after I sold to Cynics, we never grew by less than $100 million in a year or $100 million in a quarter quite often. But then that's the law of scale also. It's very... It's easier when you're doing 100 million to grow by 60 million than it is when you're doing uh, 2 million to grow by 60 million. So you built this company and then you you sold it to this American firm, I think, Cynix? Cynix. I I sold it to Cynix and I became CEO of Cynix Canada. And uh, I did that for five years. Then I retired. I moved to New York because I wanted (laughs) to do a stint in the States. And then my dad got sick. So I moved back to Canada. And um, I was on the board of Danby Appliances. And the CEO resigned. And I said to the family that owned Danby, oh, I could go in and run it. And then they said, and I, and I learned when I was not, when I was retired, that I actually like operating a business. And uh, like I was still doing boards and I was still doing some advisory. You know, you're still, you know, doing some investing. You're still doing some stuff. But um, it's not the juice that I get from running a business. So then the family who owned um, Danby Appliances asked if I could sell or told me they wanted to sell. And I said, how much for? They told me. And I said, great, I'll take the business. So that's how I ended up owning Danby Appliances. Um, And you know I'm a tech background guy and appliances are becoming more tech. but we also brought out our first real technology product, a parcel mailbox called Parcel Guard, which is where you, how you get your Amazon delivery. So basically, the the UPS or the FedEx guy puts the parcel in the mailbox, which has the one-way shoot, just like uh, a Canada Post mailbox, and uh, you get an email or a text um, telling you got a four-pound parcel. It arrived at ten fifteen. Um, you can look on your IP camera, see who's there. Um, you can talk interactively with someone if you're on my front porch. Um, 
It has a keypad if you want, and the parcel's too big to put in the top. You can uh, open the bottom or if you're doing a return. So that's the first real technology product that Danby came out with. That's by reframing what Danby does. We're not an appliance manufacturer. We're a company that makes big boxes, and these are big boxes. A company that makes big boxes. Isn't that interesting? Um, I mean, yeah, one of the things we all have to do as entrepreneurs is figure out what business are really in, what defines us. Are we in refrigeration? And it sounds like you said, no, we make big boxes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because we, I mean, we, we've got a million square feet. We uh, ship 10,000 containers a year. We're good at moving big boxes. And I just told you the whole idea. You go start a business and do that. It, it, it's kind of space intensive and, and it has, it's the same channels, you know, it sells through Costco and Home Depot and Lowe's and all the same people that buy the uh, freezers and the bar fridges and such. Right. So tell me a little bit. So, so well, let's talk about the, the parcel guard because uh, I, I did see that that was new and I thought that's exciting. What, how long have you, has that been on the market and what kind of impact has it had? So it's really only been on the market since about January, like fairly recently, um, in full production. And so we we won a lot of awards. I believe within a decade, most people will have some sort of parcel solution. Um, it's kind of like when I was growing up, people didn't lock their cars, and they often left the keys in the ignition. And then we got really high security, and we put our keys on the visor. And now, pretty well, everyone locks their car. The same thing's going to be true of parcels. You're not just going to say, you're, you're, going, to, you're going to remember fondly. I remember when people just put the parcel on the front porch. Um, but pretty within a decade, most people will have a parcel solution. I'm not arrogant enough to think it will be only ours, but we can be one of those solutions. And then I look at it from a market share point of view. If there's 70 million households, standalone households in North America, and 70% of them have a parcel solution, that's 50 million pieces. And if I have a 10% market share, that's 5 million pieces. And it'll get replaced at the same rate as freezers once every 10 years or so. So it'll uh, have an ongoing market of in that range. It'll be good. Right. It, it's funny because obviously you build a business for the future that you see coming. Because I looked at it and I said, well, this this product will sell in the States, but in Canada, we still just drop $100 parcels on the front door and it stays there. And in most cases, it's there when you get home yeah, but, but, in, in the evening. But that's because my marketing team has not yet gone to your community, Rick. What we do is we steal the parcels and put a post-it <laughs> note on the door. That's a joke, right? <laughs> it's a joke, yes. Are you kidding? <laughs> this goes national. <laughs> and then I get a visit from somebody. <laughs> I, I just wanted to make sure that, that, that you know, the listeners got it. Yeah. So, so your job is now to make us paranoid, though, about the security of the parcel on our door. Um, I, I guess you could say that, but I'm not really. I don't have to do that. If you... Google parcel theft, you, you, it's all over the news. It it just happens. And it's so logical. Why would, like, it just seems un, unreasonable to put a parcel on the front porch and expect someone's not going to steal it. People people follow the FedEx truck. It's, it's yeah. It just feels wrong to, to open your door and find that somebody just left a parcel uh, in front. It just feels wrong. It, you think... Do we live in some ideal world? Because obviously we don't. So uh, what are your expectations for this product? Uh, I think that will increase our size by about 50%, maybe more. 
So that'll, uh, and, and I like growth because growth is inspirational for staff. Growth is the best way to drive efficiencies into a business. Um, it's really difficult if you're running a business that doesn't grow because some of your expenses are going to grow anyways. And the only way you can make um, the same amount of money is by then, oh, what are you going to do? Right size? Or are you going to, uh, how, how can you reduce your cost? It's easy to re- reduce your cost on a percentage basis if you have growth. So tell me a little bit about the refrigerator business. I think of Danby as making beer fridges. I know it makes more than that. But since you've taken over the company, what other areas have you let it into in the, the appliance business? So in the appliance business, which for us is mostly small refrigerators, bar fridges and freezers and wine coolers, um, I'm an environmental guy, so we push a lot on energy. So what can we do to reduce energy consumption? Everything is becoming IoT over time, but I am a techie guy, but I don't believe in adding technology if it doesn't add value. So I'm very careful not to try to add complexity if you uh, can avoid it for sure. Right. So, so what, what does that mean? Have you got some new products? I mean, I remember when you first took it over, I thought you will bring out the first refrigerator that talks to us because people used to talk about that. And have you looked at that? Are you working on it? Oh, sure. Absolutely. We've looked at that. We've looked at IoT and, and all this, but I'm telling you that mostly what people want is a refrigerator. You plug in and it works and you don't have to worry about it. And uh, we are not generally your primary refrigerator. We're most often the second refrigerator. So we're in your den, we're in your garage, we're in your uh, TV room, uh, we're in your dorm room. Um, and so most of the innovations are are small but meaningful. Um, like we have we sell a lot to hotels and hotels. Um, and another thing we put time into is uh, design because people want a product that looks good, especially with a wine cooler. They want to show their friends, here's the wine that we have. You don't want to have that if it's uh, something that doesn't look uh, look good and whatnot. Right. Now, when we bought uh, fridges for my kids in their dorm rooms in university, um, we didn't buy Danby because there were all these new brands from Asia that were so incredibly cheap. How do you compete in this commodity market? Well, I mean, we do. We are actually price competitive. So you have to be price competitive. That's table stakes. And then there are many people who will buy Canadian. Um, the other thing we pride ourselves on is making what I call 10-year appliances. If an appliance doesn't last 10 years, we have failed. And there are people who value that and don't want uh, a product that is only for one term or two terms at, uh, at university. So we compete. It's a competitive market. Competitive market makes us all good. Um, and that's uh, what we do. And, and we look for our little competitive advantages. Wherever you can gather a competitive advantage, then do it. So, so how, how is it that you can c- compete? Sorry, I'm going to ask the same question again because I, I just didn't hear what I wanted, I guess. Um, you know, we, we hear that Canadian manufacturing is doomed and yet you're still churning them out here. Yeah, so we uh, buy many of our products in Asia. So we buy many of our products in Asia and we bring them in. So if you talk about competitive advantage, um, we were out in the warehouse and I see a container come in and it's got uh, maybe a, um, a third of a meter space at the top of the container. And I say, oh, gee, we're paying to ship that in. 
what could we put in there? So ah. we don't make it. We put in um, blenders, smoothie blenders. And so we just go to a smoothie blender company, say, you know, show me your smoothie blenders. Oh, great. We like this one. Um, we'll take, you know, 10000 or whatever. And then we top fill the containers. Now, my poor competitors, they have to pay for shipping to bring those in from China. I, don't, I already paid for that. So that's <laughs> using something you're already paid for. And then we put those in brown paper boxes so that when you ship it on a .com, Amazon or Wayfair or um, Costco.com, it, uh, you just stick a, a mailing shipping label on it. If you bring something in in a color box, you need to put that in a, in a brown box and right. put some fill in. The consumers don't appreciate it. They're packaged well enough as is. So those little innovations saves you a dollar sixty shipping and saves you a dollar twenty for the uh, color box versus the brown box. Saves you putting it in the over box, which is another dollar uh, seventy, and saves you the fill. And your shipping size is a little bit smaller, so it saves you another forty cents. Add it all up, you saved four dollars, five dollars on an item that sells for forty dollars. That's competitive advantage, and. And I always look for competitive advantage in, in all my business. That's 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 a primary focus. Sounds predatory, but you're like the world's nicest guy. So how do you how how do you, how do you merge those two sides of you? <laughs> well, I'm not trying to kill my competitors. I'm just making sure that we have 100% utilization, and I look for micro competitive advantages. That was the whole deal in the computer industry, because you know, in the computer industry, because you were in it for a long time, it was it's a really competitive business, and it's very difficult for us to say why is our HP toner better than someone else's HP toner. It is HP toner after all. And, uh, and, and so it's all about figuring out what's your micro competitive advantage. How can you grease your system so that you have an advantage? Um, and I actually don't like going into business. Um, if I don't have an advantage, one of the things I say competitively, if a competitor does it well, then I tend to let them do it and then look at what they don't do well. And do what they don't do well. So Danby is a smallish appliance manufacturer on appliance manufacturer scale. So if you came to me and said, you want uh, 250 fridges with your logo on it to give to all of the people you interview, we would say, great, and we put an A-team on it, and you'd have 250 fridges with a logo. If you go to my competitors that do $10 billion, you go to LG or Samsung or Whirlpool and say, you want 250 fridges, they would say, you mean 250,000? And so that allows us to take a little order, which is meaningful for us, but it's not meaningful for someone else. So the lesson in business is the more, greater the distance you can be from your competitors, that gives you competitive advantage. So people say, oh, how can I compete with you? You're, you're big and, and we're small. You have competitive advantage because you don't have the overhead and you can work, to, you can work faster than the big guys. So uh, there's all kinds of competitive advantage. Plus, if, if Rick, if you came to me and said, I, I've got a great appliance here and, you know, we can sell uh, a million dollars a year on this new appliance, I'd have to say, I I'm sorry, I can't do it. We do like $400 million, like a million dollars. It's too much work. It's too much. Like, I, I can't do it for a million dollars. So a small guy is going to say, wow, a million dollars. That's a good little foundation for my business. Fantastic. If I, thinking in terms of the people who uh, follow Startup Canada and listen to our podcasts, who are you know small entrepreneurs and uh, startups, um, what are some exa other examples of micro competitive advantages they might look for? 
Um, well, one of the things I always look for is 100% utilization. And so always look for pockets What because if you have anything that's not utilized, using it makes uh, sense. One of my competitive advantages, I'm reasonably frugal, and I actually have a reputation for that. And I'm not, I'm uh, frugal is not cheap. I spend money if it's if it's warranted, but it also means when you come to visit my office, and you've been to see my office, I believe it's uh, um, it's relatively four walls and relatively uh, plain. What you'll be impressed with is the cars in the parking lot and product moving out back, in my opinion. So it won't help if I've got a marble reception area. So in my business, competitive advantage is not spending as much money. And uh, and the, the, the use of resources is sort of how I came up with the shipper bee idea to get 100% utilization of resources. Right. We'll, 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 we'll get to that in a minute. So, so you've had an experience. You've been an entrepreneur running a small company. You've grown it to a pretty large company. Uh, then you've, you went public. So you were the, 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 the CEO of a publicly traded company. Then you were the CEO of a Canadian subsidiary of a larger American company. Now you're the CEO of your own Canadian manufacturing company, and you're also a startup entrepreneur. So you've been through the entire scale of business and you're starting over again and repeating. Um, which was the most satisfying to you? Which of those roles do you find you love the most? You know, that is a great question, and I don't spend enough time celebrating or being satisfied. You're so, never satisfied, uh, I know. <laughs> I'm never satisfied, exactly. Uh, however, I will say my little stint at retirement was really good for me because it taught me that I like to work and I like to do my entrepreneurial things. And I came back at it with major energy because I, I realized I, I'm doing it because I want to do it. Um, because you, you're kind of, uh, you kind of grow up and you say, oh, you know, start a business and sell it for a lot of money and then retire and play golf. And I retired and said, I hate playing golf and I'm not going to do that. You know, I, I, nothing inspires me like doing business. So for me, it's like one big chess game or one big game. And, uh, it's what I choose to do, what I enjoy doing. Right. What do you wish you knew back when you were just getting started and, and building EMJ as a, as, as a major distributor of computer products and parts? Well, it, people say this all the time, but it's don't sweat the small stuff, but also sweat the small stuff. So <laughs> it, in business, it is the small stuff that makes you money. But at the same time, there are – so what I have in, – in business, there's some things which I call conditions. So a condition would be something like the exchange rate. The exchange rate is what the exchange rate is. The politics are what the politician. Whoever gets elected gets elected. You deal with that. You can't change it. So you learn what are you, how are you going to cope with the conditions and the cards you're dealt with. But at the same time, um, I look at it a little I'm – I'm enjoy gardening. I look at it a little like a garden. You can't fight nature. Some things you just have to go with. Right, right. And are you still reading like a book a week? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. And tell me the two books that have most influenced you in terms of your approach to business and leadership. Because I know you're a student of leadership. You write about the books you read. You try and get the lessons you can. And you're amazing. You're like a, a, a service that, 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 that uh, encapsulates the best ideas from the books that you read. Well, 
I mean, my my current favorite or the, one of my most recent reads was Factfulness, which is a great um, Factfulness. A great book. Factfulness. So I certainly uh, enjoyed that. Um, I like uh, Chip and Dan Heath stuff, The Power of Moments. Um, and uh, I mean, I like uh, Four Disciplines of Execution and 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing is a classic. I'm a marketing guy, but I have a huge list. <laughs> yeah, I have a trouble, which is that I read books and then I forget 98% of them within 30 days or something. Have you found any way to actually retain the information that you absorb? The so I'm not good at I'm not perfect at it either, Rick. But the perf the, the that is where writing down some notes for me makes a difference, or teaching the material makes a difference. So if I read a book and I say, "Wow, this is great," I'm going to share it with my staff, and I do a little PowerPoint on the book. I remember it a lot longer because I take the time to, and and I also means when I'm reading and I'm reading with a purpose. So I'm going to say, "We're going to learn, you know, how to do this." I better learn it myself before I uh, before I teach it. So teaching is the best way to retain, in my opinion. Yeah, so it takes a little bit longer to do that, to make notes or even a PowerPoint, but obviously the, the, the impact is going to be a lot greater. My, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And does your staff, what, what, do they roll their eyes when Jim says, hey, here's a PowerPoint about the book I read, or do you think they really get into it? Uh, it obviously depends on the person. I, I try hard not to... Um, uh, overwhelm my staff if I can. And uh, I am deliberate in, like, I have so many ideas, I I have to filter and not bring them all to fruition or else nobody would have any time. Jim, uh, I recently read on the website that at one point, Danby put out a call for entrepreneurs. And the story was that Danby had so many ideas, there were so many opportunities that were you looking at at Danby that internally you couldn't handle them all. And you thought some of them were ideas that other entrepreneurs could come in and look at and maybe carry out or execute. I'm just wondering how that worked out for you and whether we're going to see some results from that project. So hopefully you will see some results, but those will all be longer term because as we know, entrepreneurship is a, a decade thing. It's not a one-year thing. Um, but yeah, you're right. I've got tons of ideas and never enough uh, time to implement them all. And I've heard that some entrepreneurs don't have the ideas. We've got the ideas. We just need people to execute on them. And some of it goes back to the size. I mean, if you know, we have an idea that's a half-million-dollar in sales, that's maybe just not big enough for us to uh, to do. And many of the ideas, of course, center around the around our own business, things that we can do and supply and uh, and help with. So there's some self-servingness in that as well. But some of it's just ideas that uh, have nothing to do with our business. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't really heard of companies that are saying, hey, entrepreneurs, come see us. We think we have some some opportunities. Um, and it seems to be an ideal situation if we could get um, people who know how to run with ideas together with a company that has resources and markets ready to go if we can get the right uh, uh, thing together. So is, is, is this the future of business or is this just a little anomaly here? Well, the problem is I'm too entrepreneurial, so I think it's a future business. I think that all businesses should do it. And where businesses should do it is look at where you're currently spending money. And if you're spending money 
then some other person can have a very good business around that if you're already spending the money and they can save you money. So um, my son works at Siemens Gamesha and they have a program similar to that. So they look at, you know, they're purchasing, I have no idea, $5 million worth of wind turbine blades or whatever. And, uh, and they put it out to entrepreneurs. Can you supply these wind turbine blades? Uh, we need one that, I don't know, goes backwards or uh, has lower wind resistance or whatever. And, and so it's sort of like a, a contest, but I think a lot of businesses could benefit from it. It's actually one way to start a business is to look at someone who will be your customer. Um, I always say sell, then buy. Don't buy, then sell. And I've seen so many business failures where people say, oh, I'm going to design this app and it's going to do this and we're going to do this SaaS service and we're going to design it and everybody's going to buy it. And then they come back a year later, gee, nobody bought it. We just spent a million dollars or $5 million developing it and it didn't work. My experience is it's best to go to someone and say, oh, great, you want to spend a million dollars? Great, we'll take your million dollars, we'll develop the product. So it's a sell, then buy, as opposed to buy, then sell. And to some extent, our entrepreneurial model is broken as a country or as an entrepreneur uh, business because people are not always buying, then selling. They're they're doing it the other way around. Yeah, yeah. If there were any listeners to the podcast who thought, hey, I might be interested in taking on a project like this, it sounds like it's in my wheelhouse. Um, what's? Can you tell me sort of an example? And you can make one up if you don't want to give a, a real one away. What's an example of a sort of opportunity that you see spinning out of Danby that someone could take out, take over? So um, we have a product called Danby Fresh, which is a herb grower to grow herbs. It looks like a wine cooler. Uh, it's like a little indoor greenhouse. It's great for starting seeds indoors and, and putting them outdoors. Um, it's also great for making wheatgrass and growing uh, parsley and basil and chives and uh, cilantro inside. If someone would like, I would love them to sell seeds and seed pods. Ah. because I don't want necessarily to go into the seed business. And uh, that's a very simple, it's not, a, it's not a simple business, but it's a business. And uh, it's synergistic with what we do, because some people who buy these would like to buy the seeds or the seed pods that go with the uh, go with this. And uh, so that's that's a simple example. Yeah, and that is incredible, because selling seeds is probably the oldest business in the world. <laughs> well, well, it is. Now, Rick, that's another example, though, of competitive advantage. So I went out to the dumpster to say, we don't, it's not a dumpster, but it's, it's shredder. What's going out to scrap metal? And said, so what, what are we throwing out? And I, I look at that. And we had some wine coolers, which were going in the, in the scrap because the compressor didn't work. So I said, well, why don't we take the compressor out of the wine wine cooler and put in grow lights because it's kind of a nice looking box anyways and i'm a gardener yeah. so um and and i'm you know i i like fresh uh, herbs all year round fresh herbs are ex- too expensive you know they're they're expensive they're overpriced and they're still not fresh if you buy them in the grocery store by the time you use it two weeks later or a week later they're not as fresh yeah, as what yeah. i like so um i we started it, we sold it, we called it a Danby Fresh Eco, which meant that we, and we, we said, you know, this is made from a reworked wine cooler. That's, uh, and uh, then, of course, you know what happened. We didn't have enough dead wine coolers, so we had to do a couple of runs of uh, new, brand new product, which is But at that perfect. point, you'd already proved there was a market, so it's, 
Exactly. Sell it, it, exactly. Buy. It's felt. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, exactly. So we try it and, and it worked. And now that product is also not going to make the company, if you know what I mean. It's never going to be, it's not going to be like freezers or uh, bar fridges where I'm going to say, oh yeah, we're selling a million of those. But it's a neat little niche. And the other advantage of that niche, if you look at, well, who else is in that market? There's really nobody else of much size that has the same competitive advantage as we do. And, and competitive advantage, the um, Danby Fresh that we manufacture right now, it's made with the wine cooler off the wine cooler line. So it has the same do door as a wine cooler, the same handle as a wine cooler, the same shell, the same chassis, the same screws. It's got everything. So our you're running 10,000 wine coolers of a certain type and you say, yeah, let's run it a thousand uh, um, Danby Fresh on the same uh, line and then just put some uh, grow lights in it. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, so if any entrepreneurs out there want to get in touch with you in uh, in Guelph, Ontario at Danby, then uh, we encourage them to, 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 to call through and see if they can get you. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then... One of the most interesting things is that you've also added to this new side hustle of Shipper Bee, and it's uh, it incorporates your interest in reducing waste and 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 working to capacity whenever possible, and 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 finding uh, these convenience. So tell us about Shipper Bee. So Shipper Bee is a courier that saves 73.1% of the greenhouse gas per parcel shipped. And you're going to say, well, how does it do that? We do that by not going hub and spoke. So currently, most parcels, when you ship from London to um, Kitchener, go London to Mississauga to Kitchener. So parcels are going backtracking. Or in the States, it's New York to Memphis to New Jersey. So um, what we're doing is we're going direct from New York to uh, New Jersey. So that part of it's the lack of hub and spoke, but the other part of it is using um, what I call the power of while. What can you do while something is going anyways? So we've designed, a, we call it a hive because the name of the company is Shipper Bee, which is a transfer mailbox. So a parcel will get picked up at your business, dropped off at the hive at the Petro-Canada station on 401 and uh, whatever highway you're near. And then someone who is already driving to the next exit or five exits away would pick up 12 parcels from that hive and drop them at the Esso station. Then an endpoint driver on the other end would pick up 40 parcels and deliver them into the subdivision. So part of the leg is done using the power of while, which is, I, I actually had a chapter in a book I wrote on time management probably 30 years ago I called The Power book. of While. Yeah, it was called The Power of While. And it's been with me. I always believe in The Power of While. When you say I read a lot of books, I would say I read a lot of books, but I listen to an equal number because I drive. I right. don't drive yeah. a lot, but just uh, when I'm in the car, I listen to audiobooks. And so you say, wow, Jim, you've read so many you books. You mean well, podcasts, read right? I read pod. I, I listen to podcasts. That's all I listen to. Exactly. <laughs> That's all I do is listen to. No, I seriously. Podcasts, I listen to podcasts and audiobooks. And audiobooks. Yes. Exactly. Um, but power. The power of while is so the parcels move while the car is going. Anyways, now the key with that commuter leg is you don't want to do it if you have to drive into the subdivision to find the house. You don't want to do it if you're 
not dropping it off right along your route. So the key is for it to be stopped at the gas station you're driving by on the way onto the, the interstate and the gas station you're driving by on the way off the interstate. And North America is mapped with gas stations all along the interstates. That's the way North America is mapped. So it's all perfectly set up for us. And the gas stations want it because when you're picking up the parcel at a gas station, you might say, oh, I'll get gas or I'll buy uh, a coffee or whatever you buy at a Stop for the overpriced store. snacks, yeah. But the fact is, overpriced snacks uh, for the gas stations, that's 50% of their margin. So what can you tell us about Shipper B in terms of uh, the state of the company now? How many employees does it have? Uh, what kind of volume is it doing and where? So Shipper B is uh, in uh, Ontario and parts of the United States, and we would have um, around 60-ish employees, and we would have hundreds of drivers, and we're shipping thousands of parcels. So um, it's a real business that's doing some real volume, and uh, we will do, you know, we'll do millions of uh, millions of parcels, and we can disrupt um, FedEx and UPS just like. Uh, uh, Uber did to taxis or Airbnb did to hotels because um, I, I, partly because the environmental I'm an environmentalist so I, it's great to say oh, this saves the environment but at the end of the day we save money and if you save money then people are really interested and uh, something's not very scalable if you can't uh, have the economics work and that's what I said at the start of this podcast make money and do good for the world. That's the best type of business. Yeah, fantastic. And Shipper B, where do you think that'll be two years from now? So I think Shipper B can be a, a meaningful courier, but you see, shipping, parcel shipping is growing by 20% per year. So if we got 1% of the increase in parcels, we could be close, you know, you could be a half billion dollar company, sizable company by, by my standards, your standards, but it means that uh, um, poor FedEx and UPS only grew by 19%. You're, you're not taking much of a dent out. There's not the capacity. People can't hire truck drivers um, fast enough. And, uh, and there's certain things you can do with our system, which traditional hub-and-spoke couriers can't do. We can do, for instance, a four-hour delivery guarantee. You can't do that if it's hub-and-spoke because – you're not going from uh, right. New York to Memphis to New Jersey. You do it overnight. You don't do it in four hours. So our system is continuous ship. So if you're a shipper and you have you know, 10 parcels available at 10, then they get picked up at 10. And you have 20 parcels at 11, they get picked up at 11. And so you know, just continuous ship all day and uh, right into the evenings. Another competitive advantage we have on that is when we do signature delivery, we leave the parcel in the hive until the the homeowner is home and says they want to get it. Unlike traditional couriers that put all the parcels in the van and drive the route, right, right. hope you're home, ring your doorbell, and when you don't run down fast enough, then they put a sticker on your door. We email or text to say, you know, tell me when you're, you're going to be home and we'll deliver it then. And we leave it in the hive. So we're not moving it multiple times and saying, oh, yeah, come pick it up uh, um, right. at our location. And how do you divide your time? You, you've got two organizations that you clearly love. How do you divide your time between them? Well, the, the key with uh, entrepreneurial and creative stuff is it's not usually done in a time. Everything is done at the same time. And it's the entrepreneurial question, what are you spending your time on? Like, what am I spending my time on now? 
is this Danby or is this Shipperby? It's probably half and half. I don't know what it is. <laughs> um, and uh, the other thing I say is, uh, you know, I don't actually do anything. I have a lot of people that do everything. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I don't do anything. I've got people. That's the way to scale. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that CEOs and leaders do quite a bit and work hard into the night to make it look so easy, but we'll go with that. So it's been an amazing journey that you've been on. Um, do you feel that you're near the end or do you see lots of other things you still want to do? Oh, I, I see lots and lots of things I want to, I still want to do. I, I mean, part of what's made it easier for me to do at this stage is because I had the history of doing what I did. And so now it is so easy because everybody returns my call because I can get like when I was starting my computer business, nobody returned my call. Nobody wants to talk to me. Nobody, you have no credibility. It's all, you know, pay cash and then we'll talk to you. And even then we won't talk to you. You look too young. Now, um, I can get an audience with almost anybody. And, uh, um, and so it, it, in many respects, it's it's easier. So to some extent, I'm trading on my past reputation. And that's not a bad thing. That's a normal thing in business. So build a good reputation and then capitalize on it. Right. So, so you're increasing your capacity. So it sounds like your ambitions are sca still scaling. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you see, I also am kind of a save the world type guy. And there are world problems. I probably wouldn't be doing Shipper B if it wasn't such an environmental impact. Um but it's massive environmental impact. Right, right. Okay. As we wind out of this story now, because it's been so interesting, um, what do you see are the key things of the, of the future of business? So we've mentioned the environment. We've mentioned about uh, collaboration and, and as, as, as a form of, of, of uh, executing on innovation. Uh, we, we, we've talked about using the power of while and the, the power of empty space to, 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 to build businesses and new products. Uh, what do you see for the future? Can you, can you bring all those threads together for me? So I believe, uh, see, businesses by nature are economic and they need, they're in business to make money and that's what drives people. So when I'm talking to business people, I say, if you do good, you will inspire your staff to work harder and you won't have, and they won't leave you, and it builds more loyalty. So building a business which does good is the right economic decision. And I believe in the future there will be more and more businesses that are done for economic, uh, or for uh, do do good, but it has an economic reason for that. Right for values and economics. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. I wish we could bottle you. Now, you recently won. You were named the Ontario Entrepreneur of the Year uh, by the Ernst & Young EY people. Um, how was that for you? Does, does winning an award like that, that's not just a local contest. That's all of Ontario. Um, does that uh, help in terms of reputation? Did, did that help put you on the map? Or is that just, yeah, another award, another night out? Uh, no, no, I... I'm very honored whenever I get these awards, and in many cases, I'm blown away that I would actually get them. So these are great honors. Um, I have been very blessed in life. Um, I believe, actually, for my refugee project, I learned the secret of happiness is uh, being grateful for what you have, not ungrateful for what you've lost or not ungrateful for what other people have. So I'm very grateful to receive uh, awards when I get them. 
And and, and in, I mean, from a self-serving business point of view, Danby is a consumer brand. A consumer brand, I, I need everybody to know Danby and uh, Shipperby. I need people to know Shipperby and Danby because uh, then people will ship with us and people will uh, buy my bar fridges. Right. You mentioned the refugees, so we should just explain that a little bit. Uh, when the, I guess it was the Syrian refugees when they were first coming to our shores, and we needed sponsors. I think you were, you stepped up in a very special way. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Well, I, I sponsored fifty. I, I said I was going to sponsor fifty um, Syrian refugee families. Um, that made me the poster child of refugee, which was an unintended consequence. I got a massive amount of press, um, and. Uh, as a result of that, as the poster child, I've gone on and sponsored, uh, I'm well over 100 families, and I've gone not only from Syrian families, I've done Venezuelans and Eritrean and um, Congo and different countries as well. Um, there's a huge world need still um, with the refugee um, community, but that's just part of doing the right thing, which is, which is what our slogan is, is do the right thing. That's what we, uh, that's what we do. Jim, you are a, f a philanthropist and an entrepreneur and uh, and a leader extraordinaire. So congratulations on that. Um, we are are uh, we've followed each other for a long, long time, and I'm just so glad to see you still just just hitting your stride now. Let's finish that off. If you have one tip, one basic tip, and you can't say the thing about do well by doing good this time uh, for our entrepreneurial audience. Uh, one other tip that you've learned that you that you really wish they would live by. So, uh, uh, one the one tip is when you are successful, stay humble. And that, in my, I've seen businesses fail from a lack of humility. And just again, do it for self-serving reasons. If you don't want to do it because it's the right thing, don't uh, don't start thinking too much of yourself because at the end of the day. Don't worry, you're not that special, is my view. I, I certainly don't feel I'm that special. I'm just a guy. <laughs> I think you're pretty special, and I hope that all our, all our listeners will think that as well, and maybe some of them will get in touch with you and become your next partners on your next big project. So uh, Jim Estill of, of Danby and Shipper B, congratulations on just killing it in, in, in business just now. And thanks very much for being a guest on the Startup Canada podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Rick. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week in the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show dedicated to unlocking the potential of every entrepreneur. Stay tuned another minute to hear the latest startup community news and the upcoming events lineup, including our hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern time. I sometimes show up there too. Until next week, I'm your Startup Canada podcast host, Rick Spence.